would you do if you were walking in the Phoenix desert on a hot summer day and had absolutely no water and felt like you were about to pass out? This is exactly what happened to Joey Azula, a 14-year-old kid collapsed from heat stroke on a summer hike in 2015. He was hiking with his father in Phoenix at the time and collapsed when they got back to the parking lot. After that, they had to take him to the hospital, and his blood was so hot that they had to remove it from his body and cool it using a medical procedure. Fortunately, he woke up and recovered, and now his brain is functioning fully normal. However, this is not um, an abnormality in Phoenix, given the extremely high temperatures that the state is experiencing due to climate change and the urban heat island effect. In fact, Arizona recorded more than 2,000 heat-related deaths over the 10 years from 2009 to 2019. Last year, Phoenix recorded 200 heat-related deaths disproportionately in hotter, poorer areas where most residents are people of color. And not all heat-related deaths are captured in death records, so this is likely to be an undercount. I found this statistic from an article published by Mara Cardis Nelson, a lecturer for the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and freelance journalist. Why is it the case that Phoenix has so many heat-related deaths in comparison to other cities? And why are minority communities disproportionately affected? What policies are being used to mitigate the effects of the urban heat island? In order to answer these questions, we need a basic understanding of how climate change contributes to the urban heat island effect. I spoke with Nancy Selliver, the state climatologist, to get her input. When I look at the average um, temperature, um, average maximum daytime high temperatures um, between the 1941 to 1970 period, that 30 year chunk, and I compare that to the most recent 30 year chunk of high temperatures, we've increased in Phoenix about 2.4 degrees Fahrenheit in that, in those, between those two windows. Um, in Tucson, the daytime temperature has done the same thing, about 2.4 degrees. The nighttime temperature in Tucson also has increased about 2.4 degrees in that chunk. So that's a global regional warming signal. That's a widespread signal. The nighttime temperature in Phoenix, however, has gone up 7.1 degrees in that same chunk of time. Sullivan explained the difference between how the natural desert landscape gets extremely hot in the day, but is able to cool itself off later on. However, in the city, this does not happen. City surfaces absorb and retain more heat. These dark building materials trap the heat. The city is also made up of many impervious surfaces, meaning that water is unable to flow through these surfaces, which is why plants are so necessary to evaporate water and cool surfaces down. That brings us to our next point, and that is what policies are being used to mitigate the effects of the urban heat island in the city of Phoenix. I spoke with Ariane Medell to get her thoughts. So, so this is not to say that we shouldn't plant trees because trees have a lot of other um, ecosystem services and benefits. They retain stormwater, they, um, they just the overall greenery, looking at a tree, you know, there's research that, that shows that trees make, increase the quality of life, make people happier. So, so we need trees in our lives. It's just that 
when you when it comes to these challenges, these infrastructure challenges, that there may be alternative shape shape types that we can use that would also conserve water. Mm-hmm. And what are those alternative shade types you, that you think would conserve more water? Well, um, shade types that would not use water in, in, in their maintenance would be PV canopies. They have the advantage as well that they produce energy. Um, and we, we've seen those a lot nowadays uh, on parking lots. I think they're a great solution to provide shade. I also asked Nancy Selliver what her thoughts were on the use of greenscaping in terms of addressing the urban heat island. Uh, low impact development um, for flood control when it rains in Phoenix and we have a monsoon particularly, we get a lot of water coming down the street. And so they cut uh, curb cuts and they take that area between the street and the sidewalk and they, they kind of dig it out so they make a swale. So essentially the water comes in off the street, the runoff from the rain, and it fills the swale where the tree's planted and it helps to water the tree. And one, it gets the water off the street, which prevents street flooding. And two, it uses that water to help grow the tree. And so there's sort of uh, two things that have to go on here to try and help get that tree established. Once the trees are established, they don't need a lot of water. So it not, it's not necessarily such a, a huge maintenance thing in terms of water. I spoke with Colin Tetro, an accomplished change agent within the sustainability arena. He is a chair for the Environmental Quality and Sustainability Commission on the city of Tempe, and as well as a previous ASU professor within the School of Sustainability and senior policy advisor in sustainability for Mayor Greg Stanton from 2012 to 2014. Colin and I spoke about the different challenges that urban heat island policy faces in the Phoenix area, as well as different mitigation strategies that are used for the urban heat island effect. And lastly, we also talked about how vulnerable communities are disproportionately affected in Arizona and the Phoenix area. What challenges do you think there are in implementing policies that address the urban heat island? So I think it's a matter of, you know, connecting what is viewed as short-term investment to long-term impact. Issues of urban heat island are not easily solved one overnight, and they are a complex constellation of a variety of different issues that conflate together in order to create a very sticky problem. So a linear policy idea of if we put X dollar here, it will result in instant X change there. Uh, is a bit myopic. It requires a little bit of a larger lens and understanding of uh, a multitude of stakeholders coming together from a variety of different angles at a variety of different levels and positions over varying times in order to actually effectuate change. Uh, And what that requires is some spin up and some investment short term in order to build capacity, create opportunity, and then drive impact. Colin told me that one of the biggest challenges urban heat island policy faces is that we often think of it as something in the short term. However, urban heat island, um, the impacts of the urban heat island, we need to consider in the long term. We cannot just simply plant a tree and expect a solution. 
Instead, we really need to think of things um, far into the future and be more forward thinking. And in order to accomplish this, we need a variety of stakeholders, government stakeholders, as well as NGOs, as well as private uh, companies, in order to collaborate on the solution together. And these different levels of expertise will really help us mitigate the urban heat island. You know, individuals are very happy to generally have a short-term win, right? And this is by no means a refrain of Phoenix politics, uh, but it's generally kind of a human condition. People tend to think in kind of checkbox orientations as opposed to a systemic in a long-term capacity. You're learning this as a sustainability scheme. It's a systems degree, right? Yeah. Is it the reality is like, great, well, I planted a tree, check, check, check. Can I get on to the next thing? Okay, potholes are next. And then what's next? And then what next? Like, yeah. As opposed to saying, it's not just a tree, it's the whole suite of stuff now and into the future that's actually required in order to address that. And I think that's honestly just human nature, right? From a, what do we do now? Great, that's done. What's next? As opposed to understanding how do things connect across the board? And it's also important to consider that it's really on a case-by-case basis, considering that the geographical locations and differences in climate from different parts of Arizona vary. So we cannot simply have a policy that in southern Arizona will work in northern Arizona. We have to consider the regional differences before we move forward with that policy. The reality is we shouldn't cut bread with a baseball bat. What I mean by that, this is not a one-size-fit-all approach. Uh, in our analysis and our application, while well, I think in premise and theory, there are a multitude of solutions. There are going to be regional, even micro-regional variances and differences. Not just, I think, in terms of locations, right? Like the northeast part of the valley in Phoenix is you know, 500 feet higher. That's a microclimate distance, right? Uh, you go down to southwest Phoenix, right? That's where literally all the air quality and the living like... It's literally downhill. Um, those are remote, those are different issues, sadly, that many of those underserved people uh, face down there. They're, I say, perpetrated against them. You also have different starting blocks for people. So I think uh, there are a multitude of solutions that simply need to be thought of on a bespoke basis, right? And you talked about greenscaping. How is it that we're going to be able to reconcile the amount of water with greenscaping, knowing we're in a long-term drought? with the urban heat island effect? Uh, very good. So two things, I would say right tree, right place. So putting in a bunch of ficus trees that are high water or oak trees, probably not appropriate. Uh, there's a balance of often native drought tolerant and water uh, low water use trees. Uh, using and being smart, again, about things like green impact and low impact development, right? So when you have things like bioswales, that when it does rain, like instead of shirking that, uh, to a stormwater area, guess what you can do? It's called a curb cut. Like you cut out a piece of concrete, water goes in there. It's magic. It's genius, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of getting rid of the water, why don't we use the water when it does rain? Because the reality is like there are Palo Breas in the desert that get water like three times a year. And guess what? They do fine mm -hmm. to an extent. So if we help them a little, but leverage nature a lot, one. Uh, two, I would say we need to think about urban heat on, not just with combating that with trees. I think trees are an incredible tool in the toolbox that we need for this, but the reality is we need to think creatively about other engineered solutions, which can include manufactured and engineered shade. It can include material science from building applications to road overlays. You know, we're actually doing some work on the cool corridors overall. 
So it's not a one or the either, it's actually not A, B, C, or D, it's E, it's an all of the above, that trees are huge and they have a multitude of effects, right? But engineered shade, <clears throat> building orientations, material science, building code development standards, water storage and design standards, not only from if you're gonna build a big thing, like the Biodesign Institute at ASU has massive underground cisterns that <clears throat> take a lot of the water that comes off the roof and they use that for all the landscaping. Mm -hmm. Like the reality is when it rains here, like, you know, it'll pour. Yeah. So like, and again, it goes away. All that building square footage of like, like if we're going to redo a whole new apartment complex, like build a whole new one, should we build into code? Like, let's talk about it. Giant underground systems that capture all of it and say like, you actually don't need any water. You can just water all the plants from like what you caught this year. I also asked Colin why the effects of the urban heat island are not being addressed as if it is an emergency in the state of Arizona. Why don't people act like this is an emergency? Because if it were any other natural disaster, I feel like we would be taking more preventative measures, but people are dying. So, uh, so I, can't, I can't ever be dismissive of that. Um, it is disproportionately impacting individuals of low income and displaced status and often minority status, right? So this is an environmental justice issue, uh, really at the heart of it now. It's happening to, it is not happening to people that have, you know, a certain level of means, even a low level of means, right? Who can still pay their electricity bill might have a disproportionate energy burden. Um, but, you know, some of these things are happening to people who are the least amongst us, which is very sad. Uh, and a, a whole nother treatise on how we treat our peoples, right? Um, outside of this. Um, furthermore, like you think about heat, it's, it's the old fable of, you know, you put a, a frog into a pot of boiling water, jumps right out stick a pot, frog in a pot of lukewarm water and turn the burner on, it's gonna cook itself. Just turn on the air more, like whatever, what's the big deal? You're like, dude, frog, pot of warming water, we're cooking here. And so by virtue of that, people with a long lens, again, people like think about what's for dinner tonight, mm -hmm. right? Not, oh, and in five years, is it hotter? Like, well, it's always hot in Phoenix in the summer. Like, it's a desert. On April 6th, I attended an environmental quality and sustainability meeting in regards to the urban heat island. What I learned from the urban heat island city of Tempe meeting was that they're implementing a new office of heat response and mitigation, which includes a chief heat response officer, as well as a tree and shade administrator. They will also be focusing um, more extensively on the tree and shade master plan, which includes planting trees as well as focusing on cool corridors. The, uh, the general fund also has a surplus um, that is going to be allocated towards these new uh, committees. Another important policy is the City of Phoenix's Cool Corridors program, and they focus this program on number one, addressing the impacts of the urban heat island, and number two, um, helping those who are low-income minority communities. After conducting extensive research and speaking to several key stakeholders, I have determined that what the city of Tempe is doing in terms of urban heat island policy is very forward-thinking, and so far it has been very effective. And uh, I believe that policies like this should be implemented statewide while also accounting for, of course, regional differences and looking at it on a case-by-case -case basis because there are other confounding factors that may affect it. 
additionally, um, I believe that this is just, this is an environmental justice issue at its core. It is not just about the environment. As we know, vulnerable populations are disproportionately affected by the urban heat island. So we need to implement engineered solutions as well as taking advantage of the natural landscapes that we do have, like trees. Um, and although greenscaping can, um, might be seen as an issue because of its water use, what I've learned is that there are many ways that we can continue to store this water and recycle it and reuse it in the end. So overall, I believe what the city of Tempe is doing with its urban forest master plan, as well as tree and shade canopy, cool corridors, it is very forward thinking and should be replicated um, in other areas. Mm -hmm.